This season on Three Things, we're zoning in on one theme, peak performance. What does it take to achieve greatness? How do you maintain it? And how do you continually find areas to improve in every area of your life? People are driven by different things. To me, the great peak performers out there are the people that are driven by this notion of there's always another gear. There's always a way to get better. It's two people, 20 minutes, and three things with Rick Elias. Welcome to part two of Rick's conversation with renowned doctor, expert in longevity, and host of the podcast, The Drive, Dr. Peter Atia. In this episode, Peter predicts how we could potentially cure diabetes and cancer in the next 10 years, what it was like to swim for 20 miles in complete darkness in the middle of the ocean, and the tiny window parents actually have when it comes to influencing their children. This is Three Things with Dr. Peter Atia. You are a father of three. Kids are influenced by many things. How do you feed your kids? How do you, you know, how do you think through nutrition and sleep? And I know you're probably fighting the good fight, but how hard is that for you? It's very hard. You don't want your kids to bristle against, you know, too much authority. You don't want them to feel like they're incredibly different. And you also realize that you only have them for a relatively narrow window of their lives. You know, if they start to become cognizant of this stuff, say when they're seven, eight years old, well, 10 years later, they're gone. Mm -hmm. So just to make the math easy, you only have 10 years of cognizant awareness on their part of how you're influencing those decisions. So the first few years of their lives, they're eating what you're putting in front of them. But like I said, you've got this, call it 10 to 12 year window where they have some say in it. And then they're off to spend the next, hopefully 60, 70, 80 years of their life making their own food choices. So I think... The, the approach we've taken, and I can't tell you if it's going to work or not because my oldest is only 11, is explaining the whys. I believe people are smarter than we give them credit for. I don't believe in just sort of giving blind instructions. I believe in nuance. I love to talk about this stuff. And I want my daughter, who's the 11-year-old, to understand that your food choices affect your performance. So it's it's not about weight. It's not about um Health seems a little abstract for an 11 year old. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't think she, I don't, we, we've never had a discussion about non alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, <laughs> but performance is something she can relate to. Yeah. How well do you, how well do you run at cross country? How, you know, my daughter loves basketball. That's her favorite sport. I got to send her out to you. You got to bring her out. Yes. Yeah. She's got a dad who doesn't play basketball. So I play with her, but you know, so, she's already kind of better than me. Summer camp at Uncle Rick's. <laughs> um, so when you talk about it through the lens of things that matter to them, I think it becomes easier for them to start to understand this. Let's talk a little bit about aging parents, kind of the other spectrum of that. And, you know, how can one help 70-year-olds that likely are kind of set in their ways think through this? If I knew that, Rick, I would, uh, boy, I'd be, I'd be so happy to offer up that insight. I don't think it has anything to do with us. I think in the end, it's all about the receiver end of that curve. I, my parents are great examples of my mom is willing to integrate and assimilate any piece of advice I can offer. Um, and she's made enormous changes in the last decade with respect to her exercise and nutrition specifically. And they've, they've paid off. Um, my father, on the other hand, um, uh, I don't think has ever once listened to a single suggestion regardless of how it has come about so unfortunately i just um, i don't offer any input anymore mm -hmm. and i let it occur the other way around which is if, if if you ask me for my help 
I'll, I'll offer it, but I'm not, I'm not in the business of offering free advice anymore because I know it's not going to be well received. And, and being malleable is not something that is historically well rewarded. Right. So I don't, I don't think that's hardwired into us to be malleable. I think it's more hardwired into us to be resistant to change. Do you believe that at some point it's almost too late? Like you've done 65 years worth of damage and it, it really doesn't matter from here on out? Certainly, yeah. I mean, there's definitely a point when it's too late. You know, when someone, I think, has terminal metastatic cancer and, you know, mm -hmm. they're in the last month of their life, I, I certainly, you know, I've been asked in those situations, oh, you know, should, should this person be on a ketogenic diet right now? And my view is no, they should be, frankly, on whatever diet is the most palatable, you know, pleasant to them that allows them to enjoy the last, you know, months of their lives. Now, maybe there are people out there listening to this who would completely disagree and say, oh, no way. And, and, but, but again, it's, I'm not telling you what I would do in that situation. I'm telling you like someone who's lived their life for this many years and made these choices. I, I just think you have to be realistic. Mm -hmm. I think, I think sometimes that horse is pretty far out of the barn. I think that's true. But you know, I want to come back to something, and, and maybe it's a little bit more personal and reflective for me, Peter, which is, you know, I think there's a some level of balance in life, right? And we were talking about we're in the gray zone, our most things sit, and all of that. You, you're probably pretty close to the white side. Okay, I'll have four drinks a month, if whatever the element is. Um, I don't want to be the healthiest person in the cemetery. <laughs> But at the same time, I want to age in a way that I can be all the things you talk about. How does one know or not know, but, you know, how would you think about, you know, uh, that spectrum of decisions and, and where are the lines that you're like, okay, at a minimum of this, you know, you may not do X every day, but for the people listening or saying, okay, you know what, I want to get 80% of it right. What, you know, and not just on alcohol, on exercise, on sleep, on all of this, um, what, what advice would you give them? Well, I think you got to sort of tether it to what you're doing it for. I mean, um, for me, it's mostly about optionality. Um, I have no idea if I'll make it to 90 or whatever. Um, what I know is I've never met somebody who at their end of their life wanted to be dead. Mm -hmm. There are people who want to die because they're suffering so much. But I've never met someone who's firing on all cylinders, right? Meaning emotionally, cognitively, physically, they're doing well, and it's the end of their life, and they're like, ah, great, I'm ready to go. I think that's usually only the response to some sort of suffering that says, I'd like this suffering to be over. True. So I think optionality is really important, and that, for me, is, is a very intellectual rationale for why I make the choices that I make. Um, and it's for me, it's specifically tagged to kids and kids of kids and kids of kids, kids. Because, I mean, I, I think for me, that's been one of the truest sense of joy is, is my kids. Mm -hmm. it's, it's certainly been the most un, unexpected surprise. Right. I didn't, I, I actually, if my wife didn't want to have kids, we wouldn't have had kids. Like I didn't feel any compelling need to do it. They certainly were going to get in the way of my aspirations of both work and non-work goals. Um, and now that they're here, one, I can't remember what it was like to have all the time before they showed up. Uh, but two, I can't remember or, that there was a day that I loved. I, did, I didn't have this degree of love for something else or someone else. So that's mostly what I think about, actually. And, and so for me, that's a very worthwhile trade-off because it is, right. it's a hyperbolic discounting problem. Most decisions you make today, um, 
it's, it's easier to have that extra drink or it's easier to do that other thing or not to do that workout or whatever. Um, but I don't really think about it as how do I feel today versus, you know, if I do it versus not do it, it's, it's more of this, I have a very clear sense of what I want tomorrow. And, you know, it's sort of analogous to saving for retirement. You have been an ultra endurance athlete, uh, swimming, correct? Um, mm-hmm. and you've done some crazy swims. Why and why did you stop? Well, you know, the why is interesting. I'm still, I think, you know, I've been, I'm writing this book right now. And, um, one of the chapters I'm writing is about emotional health. And I was just writing about this last week, actually, that when I was doing endurance swimming, most of the people I swam with were former addicts or recovering addicts. And I remember thinking, God, isn't it funny that I'm like the only non-addict in this group? which of course I now realize is wrong. I, I am an addict. <laughs> I just happen to be addicted to very socially acceptable things like perfectionism and work and things like so that. So interesting. So I, I do suspect that addicts or people with addictive personalities are drawn to that. Um, I think there's some degree of self-punishing that I probably, I think, felt a little bit about. Um, you uh, swim, Swimming in particular, because I've done endurance, I've done... I've always done endurance sports, whether it be running or cycling or, or swimming. And I've always been sort of physiologically better the longer the distance is. Like I would never do well in a short race, right. but I could do well the longer it got. And uh, I think that swimming is like the loneliest, weirdest thing. It's hard to explain. But at the same time, it's so beautiful. Like you're in a bubble that like is completely your own little world. And And it sounds crazy, but we do a lot of these swims at night to avoid the harsh chop of the water and the wind. So, you know, when you're swimming in the ocean under pitch black conditions, you can't even distinguish between the sky and the water. It's so dark. And it's, so it's really like sort of being in a sensory deprivation tank. And there, there is something that's really magical about that. Um, so that sounds scary. It it is scary. And that's part of it. I think, I think there's something, there's something really special about confronting a fear. And I remember the very first time I swam, There is really something about saying, like, I'm really afraid to get in water that is so dark I can't see anything. And I know there are sharks here, you know. Um, Do you you fear things from time to time right now? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, How how do you deal with fear? That's a great question. I don't know. I'm not afraid of things that people would think I'm afraid of. Like, I love driving race cars. For whatever reason, I've never been in a car and been afraid. And I've crashed more times than I can count. Dude, you're crazy. Um, but I have a, an unusual sense of confidence in engineering and equipment. And I know that even if I make a mistake, I'm going to be safe in this car. So that people always say, how can you be a longevity guy if you drive race cars? And it's like, dude, I'm more afraid of driving to the racetrack from all the idiots on I-5 (laughs) than I am of being on the racetrack. Um, I think I'm just afraid of being out of control. You know, I'm afraid of something happening to my, I'm afraid of my wife getting, you know, some texting person not paying attention while they're driving, cutting her off and her having an accident. I mean, that, yeah. I am afraid of losing things. There's no question. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm scared senseless of those things. Why, why did you stop um, this endurance stuff? And is it because you felt that it was hurting your body at some point or depleting things that you may need? No, I think it was, it basically became a question of time. Mm. Um, To train for that type of sport requires 
a staggering amount of time. I probably averaged four hours a day of swimming across the seven days of the week. So I was probably spending 28 hours a week in the water. It wasn't four every day. So maybe during the week, it would be two to three, but then the weekends you'd have these really long swims. And, you know, my daughter was young at the time when I stopped and I just, I think I lost a bit of that fire. Like I, you, you, there has to be a really deep burning fire when on a Saturday morning you have to get up, kiss your family goodbye, and go and swim for eight hours by yourself in the ocean. And I I think that just that desire wasn't strong enough anymore. Well, it's interesting. I think connecting two dots is you replace that desire with a new desire, which is this newfound level of love and worry that it's called parenting, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, a, and that's true of a lot of people. You know, most of the people I swam with either didn't have kids or their kids were older and they'd come back to it after. But but it's, and I remember talking to one of my best friends, a guy named Mark Lewis, who's an anesthesiologist in San Diego. And w- once his kids reached sort of sixth, seventh grade, he's like, I'm, I'm done. I'm tapping out of this. Like, I can't be spending this much time in the water. My boys need me. Mm. And he's like, you know, maybe I'll come back to this in 10 years. Maybe I won't. Right. And does it does it affect longevity to push your body that hard for extended periods of time? Yeah, I actually do think that that you know crazy amounts of ultra distance or ultra extreme exercise are counterproductive. Um, you know, the nice thing about swimming is it doesn't have the impact of some of the other sports. Um, but I don't believe it's necessary to exercise to that extent. In fact. I am much, from a longevity standpoint, in much better shape exercise-wise today than I was then. You know, back then I was hmm. a one-trick pony, right? Like right. I could swim forever, but I was not as strong. I was not as stable. I was not able to do this thing that is my current obsession, which is called the centenarian decathlon. So my goal in life from a training perspective today is to be the fittest person in my 90s that I can be and to be able to do a bunch of very specific things, you know. Why? Um, because to me, that's the thing I see most people losing when they age. You know, I see most people losing their capacity to do physical things that bring them joy. Mm. Whether that's playing pickup basketball, picking up their grandkids, laying on the floor, playing with kids. Like, think about little stuff like that. Like, right, kids right, play right. on the floor. Right. You don't play with kids sitting in a rocking chair. Right. So... You know, do I want to be 90 sitting in a rocking chair and therefore not being connected to my grandkids? No, I actually want to be with them in their element, you know, walking on a tightrope with them if I can, you know, kicking a ball around with them, um, you know, things that I love to do, like shooting a bow and arrow, yeah. uh, maybe driving a race car. Like there, th- everything I like to do has some element of physicality. So I want to make sure I can still do it. And a little bit of a, a side question, but um, how much do you think this explosion and even quantum computing and in, in all of this will have an impact on discovering new things? It seems like medicine has been almost like a eureka journey um, in, you know, what we kind of meander into through discoveries. Do you think that that technology will accelerate a lot of these issues or I think it has the potential to, but we have to ask the right questions. And I'm not convinced we're doing that yet. So I think there's this view that technology will just solve all problems. But if I look at most of the questions people are sort of asking today, I think they're kind of asking them the wrong way. And so uh, we, we have these powerful tools that I think can play a huge role. 
Um, but we have to sort of direct them at the right questions. That's why, for example, earlier I was saying like, you know, when you look at the power of exercise and sleep and nutrition and fasting and all of these other things, there's really interesting computational problems that we could throw some muscle behind as to how to dose those things. Mm -hmm. But there's not a real obvious profit center behind knowing that. So those questions tend to get thrown by the wayside as we go after questions that have greater commercial applicability. But in my opinion, actually questions that have far less clinical significance or can move the needle less when you get the answer. So interesting. I mean, I, I, what twenty years from now, what do you think it's no longer uh, a main issue in in health? Like, what do you think it's either cured or you know, not not terminal that it isn't today? I think in twenty years, when you look at the big four causes of death, um, I, I think atherosclerosis is the one we'll make the most progress in because it's the one that we have the most understanding of the causes. Mm -hmm. We don't have a complete understanding, but we certainly know what the main four drivers are of that disease. And we have really good tools to combat one of the four pieces of that disease. As we get better and better tools to combat other pieces of that disease, uh, I can see us making a pretty good dent in that. Um, I think with cancer and Alzheimer's disease, uh, again, I'm optimistic on some levels because our knowledge of the disease is growing, especially with cancer. So we are really understanding the subtypes of cancer. I don't mean by organ, colon cancer versus breast cancer, but I mean in what the underlying problem is. Activation of this oncogene, suppressor of this, you know, inhibition of this tumor suppressor gene, T cell failure, et cetera. And we're seeing more and more exciting therapies that are taking an approach that says, let's stop tackling this one at a time. You know, it's, a, it's like if, if you think about playing dodgeball with cancer, the worst thing you can do is take, you know, one guy, give him five balls and have him throw them one after the other. True. You're better off having five guys each with a ball that each gets to throw at the same time. Right. And that, so, so that's where we want to go. Yeah. And I and I think you know certainly in the next twenty years I think we should be a lot better at lining up multiple people to take multiple simultaneous shots with the ball. And, and very selfishly, you know, my mother has Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. What do you think? And maybe my own fear that you know that's my gene pool. Twenty years from now, where are we in Alzheimer's? It's tough. I think it, with Alzheimer's, even more than cancer, prevention is everything. Um, I don't believe that this is a deterministic disease. Mm -hmm. I think one of the challenges that's impaired our progress in Alzheimer's disease is the incident case, meaning the first patient that was ever described with the disease happened to have a very different disease from the one that most people get. So the one that that person got for which most of our description of the disease stems from is a very... Um, genetically predisposed version of the disease. Right. About 1% of people get Alzheimer's disease through these one of these three genetic pathways that are basically deterministic. You know, if you carry one of these three genes, PSCN1, 2, or APP, uh, you will get Alzheimer's disease. It's just a question of will you get it in your 40s, 50s, or 60s. But that's literally 1% of the disease. 99% of the people get a very different version. The version your mom has is so very different. Interesting. And I don't think 
And I don't think that that's one disease. Right. So I don't think that the 99% of people who get labeled with Alzheimer's have the same disease. Um, it might have some very similar defining characteristics, but it's many diseases and many pathways that get there. And therefore, the more we can understand that, the more we can take the preventative measures. So I think one of them is a very metabolic disease. Mm-hmm. I think one of them is a very microvascular disease. Um, I think those are probably the two most important distinctions. And knowing those in advance, I think we can hopefully get far fewer people on the path to getting there by picking them up and recognizing them far earlier before they have any symptoms. That's awesome. A couple more questions. Um, Three words that you want to be remembered by. Tried his best. Those are three words, all in one sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I took the three words literally. Um, If I can expand on that, I would say, if I could have more words, I would say something probably better, which which is unrelated to that, but um, if the only thing I've ever remembered for is that I was a great, uh, parent and a, a great dad and a, and a great husband and a great friend, I would be elated. Um, if I, if I, if I knew that my funeral had people there who could say those things, honestly, mm-hmm. uh, I would, I would be, that would, that would make everything. Cause I know that there's been many seasons in my life when that couldn't be said. It's amazing to have clarity, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Advice to your younger self or to young people in their 20s? Well, I don't know about the latter, but I'd have lots of advice for the younger me. Um, And I don't know how much of it would be applicable to others. You know, don't ignore the soft stuff. Mm. All the all the turmoil, all the self-loathing, all of the all of the stuff that you think is broken in you is it's all fixable, but you got to confront it. So don't wait too long. That's great. That's great advice. You know, Peter, one of the things I really love about you is um, we may see each other every other month or every other year. It doesn't matter. Every time I see you, I feel like you've learned an encyclopedia of things. You know, by the way, this is the podcast where I understood the least amount of words you used. You know, there were a lot of words there that I, <laughs> I got to go look up. But I, you, I really, you, Har- you Harvard guys, yeah, man. I know, right? Overrated. <laughs> I, I really admire this insatiable desire to learn that you have, and you know that's why I think you, your podcast is so brilliant because in many ways you're you're doing great work with it, but at the same time it's like this font of knowledge for you. Um, but I, I really admire that for, for about you and I, I wanted you to know that and it's inspirational. Like I think, you know, continue to grow always is such an important habit and you do that better than anybody I know. Oh, I pre- that means a lot coming from you. Thank you. Peter came and, and spoke at Red Ventures a number of years ago in, in a story that we it's too long and, and, and doesn't need to be repeated. But the story really ultimately was your realization that um, you know there's two forces often out there at, at work. One is authority, and one is doing the right thing. And you know, I would love to hear you know reflection five years later. You know, that was a story from now 20 years ago. But you know that that force, especially in today's environment, where I'm not really sure that it's being the case in in, in many really important roles in our society. You're, you're in a win state when the doing the right thing and following authority are in the same direction, right? When those vectors are aligned, um, which, you know, for someone who's working at Red Ventures, that's the case, right? They're, they're you know, they're, the moral compass of the organization 
is aligned with the moral compass of the universe and therefore doing your job is doing the right thing. And for, for, for some of us, that has not always been the case. Uh, or even in certain settings, even if you're even at the macro level, if it's the right thing, but at the micro level, there's a moment when authority and doing the right thing differ, which is what I talked about in that talk. Um, I I mean it's 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 hard because you have to have courage, you know. And and the story I told, I didn't have the courage to do the right thing. You know, I went with authority over I I went against what my instinct was, which was the the right thing to do is to go against authority and pay a price for it. Um, I guess five years later, I would just say I probably have more confidence, um, but paradoxically, it seems less relevant because you know the difference is today. I don't really answer to anybody. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I guess you know when you work for yourself or when you're the boss, the more important thing is: am I creating an environment where the people who work for me know that when I'm wrong, they have to come and tell me? Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't know that I'm succeeding there. Truthfully, I want to believe I am. Um, but the same is true with your kids. Like, can you create an environment where when you're, when you're blind to your own mistakes, do the people around you, can, can they tell you you don't have clothes on? Unfortunately, that's called teenagerhood. They'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, I, the reason I asked that question to close out is uh, I think that's a great advice to anybody, but especially people that are earlier in their careers. You know, I, there's nothing wrong with, um, you know, being aligned with authority. But if you ever believe that, you know, it's not the right thing to do, then you should do something about it. And I learned that from you. So, Peter, an unbelievable pleasure. This has been insane. I could do this a lot because I learned so much. So thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure, Rick. Thank you. Here are my three takeaways from this conversation. Number one, even though we talked a lot about hard science, he did mention we can't ignore the soft stuff. We need to put as much into our mental and emotional state as we do into our physical well-being. Number two, I love what he said about thinking about our health as we think about saving for retirement. And remember that short-term pain equals long-term pleasure. And number three, and the reason why I wanted my good friend Peter Atia to close out this second season in peak performance is that I believe that the only thing in life that matters is preserving our health. That way we can give back to those we love for as long as possible. Thank you for listening. Rick shared his three things, but we want to know your takeaways as well. Tweet at Rick Elias to let us know your thoughts on this conversation. And be sure to check out additional content, videos, and more at our blog, threethings.redventures.com. Thanks for listening.